Now in their 18th year, Fright Rags has been bringing you the best in horror apparel and accessories since 2003, offering a wide range of products for your favorite creature features, slasher flicks, and cult classics. Officially licensed collections include hit titles like John Carpenter's The Thing, The Evil Dead, Creepshow, Jaws, and so many more. Fright Rags rings in the holidays this week with two festive releases. Their official Krampus collection features brand new shirts, long sleeves, and more from Michael Doherty's Modern Classic. Also new this week is an exclusive Silent Night Dead night pop-up holiday card uh open it and find out if you've been nice or naughty limited to a thousand packs of three complete with envelopes so you can send your friend or loved one some yuletide fear all officially licensed and available now at fright-rags.com colors of the dark listeners get 10 percent off when they use code dark 10 at checkout that is dark 10 I want the Bride of Frankenstein socks from their website. They are beautiful. I want all socks. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever. Each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online. So the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. So head to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter promo code colors that is c-o-l-o-r-s to save 25 percent off your yearly subscription Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me is Elric Kane. How you doing? A uh, good Elric Kane TV star. Elric Kane TV star, because we are now like Shutter famous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can, I'm in for like four second bursts, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay, talking is, head. Uh, being talking heads. But yes, no, we did want to bring up because we, I don't think we had last night. Well, I hadn't seen it before. Uh, Behind the Monsters on Shutter, a mm-hmm. series that we and a lot of other really interesting folks were interviewed for during the pandemic. And then kind of you forget about it and then suddenly it comes on. And so far they have released the Michael Myers one came out on Halloween and then Candyman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mike Myers, I feel like I already know so much of that, you know, like like it was really interesting perspectives. But the Candyman one I thought was really fascinating and and it contextualizes these characters in ways we haven't seen before. And that one, I think, because it also talks about the new film as well. So it, it was I thought it was really good. Um, so I'm very curious how, you know, how all the series. But yeah, we pop in a couple of times and it was fun to see. And we start Turek in there a bunch. Yeah. Obviously for the Michael Myers one. Um, ex- there's one other monster. I don't think they've announced which ones they're doing yet. Um, it's kind of a surprise which ones they're releasing each week. But there's one monster franchise in particular that um, I, I definitely kind of was excited to talk about. And I really want to kind of watch that episode because I really want to hear other people's perspectives on it because it's meant so much to me. Um, yeah, I mean, so, I was surprised that they did a whole episode on the Leviathan creature, but it's cool. Right? It's so cool, though. There, you know? I it's know. Like- and I got to talk about it, and I couldn't believe it either. I was like Mike Myers 
Candyman, you, and then you know the Leviathan creature. I'm glad it was all Phil Nobles. I well, it's because everyone's been one. dressing up as that for so much Halloween's. Lately. You know, I it's thought I was the trendsetter on that, you where know, I was like, you know, Deep I've Rising. been going as the, the Leviathan monster versus Deep Rising every year for like ten years, and and finally somebody took actually <laughs> I shouldn't choke. Remember, I'm going to dress as Peter Weller someday. For that. remember the year before the pandemic, I went as the octopus from Deep Rising. Yeah, you're Deep Rising. So you're <laughs> I carried and no. No one knew what the fuck I was. Yeah. I carried around. I bought this little Barbie jet ski and I got two Barbies and I dressed them both up like, you know, one like Treat Williams and the other one like Famka Jensen. And yeah. um, I was so and I got a full like octopus squid outfit, which was so fucking hot. Um, and I remember it didn't have legs. So I put fishnets on and I was like, I'm sexy deep rising. And no one got any of it. They were just like, what? You're like an octopus eating a jet ski? And I'm like, oh, come on. No, so. it was good. That was a good brain teaser for <laughs> trivia. I thought that was that was solid. I, and um, that was actually two years ago, because the year before the pandemic, I created my own Suspiria red rope costume, remember? Oh, yeah. I was with you for that, because I was dressed as, um, what's his name? Um, Coffin Joe. Coffin Joe. And I it sucked, that. because as I walked around the room, um, the red tassels kept getting caught on stuff and because i don't know how to actually sew for shit every single time they would get caught on a chair they would just pull off and so i kept leaving tassels everywhere i went and by like halfway through the night i had half the costume left and just changed and wore suit yeah. clothes for the rest of the yeah, night you it gave was up lame. that was very i did i gave up <laughs> that was no so. not, not on the par with my blue sunshine a couple years before anyway blue sunshine enough, was great <laughs> enough halloween talk that is behind us we halloween survived october retrospectives um but you know we uh did some pretty cool screening i have to say like the week after halloween we saw last night in soho um oh, yeah. right. which was Awesome. Um, we saw this and I have to say, I, I think that I probably enjoyed it even more because we saw this in Dolby, um, surround sound in the fancy Dolby theater in the Burbank AMC 16. Um, and I'd only, I'd seen Birdman and I'd seen uncut gems in this theater before. And neither of those, you know, they're both awesome films. Um, but neither of them kind of used the Dolby in a way that last night in Soho did. Um, it was just a really cool way to see it. Yeah. It's, and look, this is Edgar Wright's new film. It's his first, um, film that isn't got comedy in it at all really it's it's it, there might be a couple jokes but really it doesn't play towards that at all it's a i would say straight uh, psychological thriller with supernatural elements right it's very stylish i think that's a lot the, of giallo influences yeah well. it was a nice movie to go back to the movie theaters for in terms of the style of it i think i think some of the you know the, the things that don't maybe stand up quite as well after it's all over are some of some of the ideas around twists and stuff like that but that first time you're watching something that doesn't really matter i'm not going to obviously get yeah. into the, that but there's some really cool stuff we definitely you know we could pick that poltergeist 3 might have influenced some of these visual gags and i've yeah. since seen a bunch of articles pop up about it which is cool but i i liked seeing him go in a different lane here um and i think it's great because we know he's going to make those other movies again because that's his dna that's that's his personality mm-hmm. this was something different and i really liked you know seeing somebody caught up in the 60s but like i i didn't know from the trailer that it was a contemporary movie i thought it was for some reason, I just had, I thought it was something said in the past and then also going further into the past. So I didn't realize it was like a girl now who just happens to be obsessed by the 60s. She mm-hmm. follows her fashion career to London. Uh, some, something bad's happened to her mom in the past. And she also has this kind of um, 
she's kind of a thin places kind of person where she's able to tap into uh, the residue of events and ghosts and things like that in her in her life, if you believe yeah. in that stuff. And uh, I did hear an interview with Edgar where he was talking about that his, that his mom is that kind of person. So he kind of based her, his mom's a total believer in everything and had all these all these kind of experiences that he's never had and he's always wanted to have them. So, so I thought that was interesting. And, and then it becomes, yeah, the twinning of this kind of a persona thing, almost but connecting between these two, uh, two girls, one, you know, uh, 20 years or 30 or 40 years, uh, even uh, more, prior. more than that. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I, is it, yeah. is it, I don't know if when it was it set now, now, or was it set in two? I couldn't tell. Like it, it was, was set before. now, now. And yeah. then in the 1960s. 60s. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 60 years. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's one of those films that it's very stylish as, as especially the past stuff is hinting at a lot of violence, uh, in, in the, the, the thing everyone idealizes of a time period of the sixties, especially the main character, like the 1960s swinging London mod lifestyle and kind of the the idealization of that. Yeah. It is a lot of like, no, no, London was still real fucking seedy during that time as well. Um, which was real fascinating. I totally enjoyed how kind of stylized and vibrant it was and using a lot of just pure aesthetics, um, which we don't get a lot of in like a lot of, you know, Shaun of the Dead, you know, end of the world or world's end and things like that. You just don't get those kind of like they don't have kind of crazy artistic scope they have a style but it's more kind of comedic and practical um this was just a wild watch and i wish i was one of those people who could just walk into a room and go i see ghosts from the 1970s it would have made like all of my new york city apartments way cooler because i just immediately would be like i bet somebody died here because they're all like 150 years old like pre-war um but yeah, I was never, I never got vibes. I would just be like, oh, I'm sure somebody died here. This has to have a cool story. Especially really old cities like that. Mm-hmm. Like New York's got a little bit of that, but LA doesn't have that. I always feel like if we start ghosts, it'd just be someone waiting for a deal. And it's so <laughs> no. boring. It'd just be like quietly twiddling their thumbs. You know, I sold one screenplay. What yeah. are they going to call? And that's it. Yeah, it's <laughs> not interesting. That's the LA. end of the ghost. Yeah, <laughs> I wrote is. four episodes of Major Dad, and then yeah. I had a heart attack. And but, but, but I will say, like having been, you know, I lived in Savannah, you you do in those older town you always feel some not presence but you just feel something in the atmosphere and, and again it, it could just be in our heads and it could be historic buildings just look differently to us mm-hmm. now you know to to what we imagine but i i definitely felt like something in the air more there than i felt in other places i've lived so yeah no i wish i had that ability i just walked actually when i was house hunting um many many years ago before i i got a house here in la i looked at one up in the hills and i walked in um it was not the the hollywood fancy hills it was the burbank hills and i kept i was like why is this one in my price range and i walk in and it was what they call a hollywood bungalow um which means it's like a one bedroom house it's like really fucking small um but it was hanging off the side of one of the hills so therefore burbank hills but as soon as i walk in the realtor looks at me and very gravely states i'm required by law to inform you that the man who lived here previously died less than three weeks ago and i was like wow that's kind of a cool story are there details and she was like i can't tell you any of that and i was just like oh Okay, cool. Um, apparently, you get that type of info when you, you actually to, you buy know. the place. But, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, but they do have to warn you. Yeah, I knew that from. Yeah, I. It was the only time I'd ever heard that. But apparently, he died in there like three weeks ago, and I immediately went home and started googling the address. And I assume it was a very uneventful death because I couldn't find any cool like crime reports, you know, wild yeah. things or anything like that. It was. But just, he you know, is behind you right now. 
Right? So he right? did follow you all these years. All right? these years. He, he is standing right in front of your Up From The Depths poster. I didn't buy his house, so that's very odd. I literally walked in and it. said, can't afford this place, but cool story. So, He's yeah. very tired haunting every person who didn't take his house. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's, it's a, a schedule. Bunch of people at that bungalow open house. So. Yeah, yeah. He's a busy guy. But no, last night's your host, kind of like, I'd say style-wise, it's like somewhere... Um, yes, there's Jalo, but then there's also, it's not as, even though there's hinted sexuality, it's not sexy in that way. It doesn't push that envelope like a Martino film. So it almost feels more like M night early, like kind of M night stuff too. So it's like a mixture of those kind of vibes, which is interesting. You haven't seen many films quite like that, but definitely worthwhile for the big screen. I think of the movies I've seen on the big screen, you know, since it's reopened, it's one of the ones that it, it just would benefit so much more from seeing that style on screen, I think. Yeah. Um, Which let's go on to our next new film that we both watched. This one came to VOD this week after doing a nice festival run. And this is The Deep House, which I have to say was probably one of my like top three most anticipated films of this year. Yeah, so this will kick off for me at least, Unintentional, which is amazing in a way that three new releases I watched this week given that I had just seen VHS 94 recently and thought, oh, this is cool that we're seeing a little bit more found footage with VHS. I watched three brand new found footage films unintentionally this week. Oh, are very we bizarre. having a resurgence? I just thought uh, I was really surprised. And yeah. none of them, yeah, none of them completely work. Like, like as far as the found footage, if you know what I mean, like they, mm-hmm. none of them completely sell that, what they're actually doing uh, in a way, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, let's talk about this one because I was excited for you for this too. And, and this I is was also really... by... Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Literally, you stopped mid-sentence and I thought you froze. That is the beauty of recording, <laughs> of, of recording um, over yeah. the internet. Um, I was just so- going to say who directed it. Bastille or Maori, Maori, the guys who did um, Livid and uh, Inside. Inside. And earlier this year, they already have one, one that I think will appear in my top 10 and might be yours too, which is Candisha. Yes. Candisha is the better movie here, but was tight. I have to say, I have to agree. Candisha is the better movie for me. Um, so the concept of the deep house, I mean, this is, it's a hell of a hook. It is two YouTubers who tour abandoned, supposedly haunted, um, buildings, which is kind of like what I wish I had a side hustle doing. Um, I'm too much of a skeptic. I just walk in and be like, that's you, Todd, come out. But, um, yeah. Todd's been Um, dead for four years. But um, yeah, so they are YouTubers and they tour haunted, abandoned buildings, um, supposedly haunted. And it's very kind of, you know, you're frustrated with them because they are very much like, this will get us millions of likes. They're fighting to figure out what abandoned building haunted tour is going to take them to the next level and make them huge on YouTube. And they hear about this town that was flooded um, and is now at the bottom of this reservoir in France. Um, which is a real thing. We did it in my town. We actually have in the town that I grew up, we have a reservoir where part of the town was flooded like back in the 1940s with the reservoir. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's a real thing. And so I was super excited by this concept because then they find out that there is still a complete, full standing, untouched house submerged in water at the bottom of this lake. And it is a huge deal. And so they're like, okay, we're going to travel to the middle of nowhere and we're going to go see this completely 
um, you know, house that still looks exactly like it did the day that they flooded it like 50 years ago, sitting at the bottom of the lake. And so they get on their scuba deer and they dive down and you get immediately aware that there's something weird going on. Like the house is completely sealed, like locked up, like who locks up a house they're about to flood. Not only that, but like windows are boarded and there's bricks over some of the windows and things like that. Um, And there's a crypt across the way and there's just a lot of like weird stuff going on. Um, So that's a hell of a hook. It is a haunted house movie entirely underwater. Within about 15 minutes of the start of the film, they are underwater and it does not leave underwater the entire movie. Um, That in itself, I was like, holy fucking shit, this movie is going to be my everything. Get an extra star just to me, extra half star at one point. The next day when I when I was just thinking like just that underwater photography alone. It's gorgeous. It's like, okay, you're you know, that's pretty hard <laughs> to pull off the way they do it. So And there was so many times that I wanted to know how they were pulling some of it off. Because the camera, it was like steady cam, but underwater, where it was moving through furniture and around yeah. corners and through railings and banisters and stuff like that. Where I was just like, How are they pulling this off? And I can't even imagine how complicated the filming had to have been. Um, So I will say that was the best part of it was the filming, the cinematography, um, the way that it looked, how they were presenting the film. And I will also say this film had some pretty tight jump scares. There were some moments where I definitely jumped, gasped, twinged, covered my face. Um, It had some really nice jump scares. Unfortunately for me, the actual story of what they find in the house was super fucking flimsy. Yeah, and 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 I really like. There's a. I don't really want to run much because there isn't mm-hmm. much. But but inside the house, there is obviously a creepy element that is in the house, and I think it's a really good one. Like it's mm-hmm. a really solid thing. It's not used. It's one of those movies where the central stuff that once you get into the house, it's just not pushed as scary as it could be. They could really push it so far. There's so many moments that felt not as scary as it, that same material should be, and I don't. I didn't know if it was the difficulty of like, you know, putting together a film underwater or just because we know these guys are really good at those big kind of moments, especially inside. Uh, And uh, Candisha recently had some of those. And I, I, there was just moments where it was a little bit like more elegant at times, which was a bummer because I wanted it to be creepier because the thing would look creepy, but the way these things would come at you, it took too long or is Mm -hmm. a little off. Uh, But, but yeah. And the story, there's multiple things when it ended that I was like, wait, they should have done this at the end. They should have added this. And what about that character? Where did they, you know, and it's always a bummer when something cuts out at a point where you felt like there was still some loose ends that could have been deepened, I think. Yeah. Awesome concept. Amazing package. I still deeply encourage people to see this because this is unlike anything I've seen before. And it is truly some groundbreaking filmmaking. And again, the scares were great. Um, It just did not, uh, the whole concept of what the house is and why it is uh, didn't, I wish they'd pushed it further. Um, But that said, I still stuffed popcorn in my face the entire time and gasped and cheered and got excited and went, holy shit, did you see that? It was in the background. And like, there was still just beautiful moments of that. And if like me, you're struggling in the first 15 minutes because uh, minute three, whatever it was, as soon as I see this guy, I just turned, I start with Dick and I was like, is this guy imitating Mick Jagger? What is wrong with this guy? And then of course it's Mick Jagger's son. (laughs) 
and it is so. Now you feel bad, don't you? No, but it was so distracting because he looks like him and he sounds like, him and it just—I didn't believe him as a he human did. in the world at all. Like I didn't believe it was a person doing a YouTube show. Whereas the, the girl was, fi- you know, fine in it, but it threw me off a little. But like Becca said, it's only about fifteen minutes till they're underwater, and then it's all good. So and then it's all good. Um, so, so yeah, check it out. Definitely fun, super tight jump scares, yeah, and so is. that was the Deep House, which you can now. I watched it on Amazon. I think it was a couple bucks to rent. Yes, and Livid is still not available in America, which that is, is criminal. A fucking shame. Yes, somebody needs to write that. Um, okay, I'll I'll go through a couple. One one of the other ones, just because we're in the. I'll just do one of the other uh, ones. The came out at the same time that I think he, I really want to see what you think of this one. This is um, another found footage paranormal activity next of kin. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reasons I, I want your thoughts is because it's directed by William Eubanks, who did a little movie you enjoyed called Underwater. Yes. Um, and this is, uh, you know, it's interesting. I didn't definitely didn't dislike it. Like I was in, I was enjoying it. It is not one moment did it feel like a paranormal activity movie to me, which, you know, I'm not going to complain. Yeah, yeah, it's different. I mean, that it, definitely ran its course. And I mean, the reason that towards the end, I was like, I really liked the Mark ones is it felt like it was I doing Mark something ones, yeah. different. Yeah, but this one feels like literally, I think I mentioned this when we went to the movies. So this feels like if it had Rec 7 I would have been like, oh, cool, it's a rec movie, and you would have believed it. It feels more like the rec world than it did paranormal activity for me personally. Um, but it's a, a girl is going to make a take a documentary crew. She has been, uh, she has a brother who has left an Amish uh, sect, you know, that's very isolated, and he has left that world and he s- sought her out through the internet. And they realize they are brother and sister, and she was like uh, given up at birth, so she never knew any of her real uh, family. So, so she's going to get a document, a small documentary crew, and they're going to, you know, kind of chart it. They're going to go back to this Amish community and see what the story was, basically, and find learn more about her birth mother and stuff. And uh, so the setup's good. The movie has one of the best characters of the year. I will say that, like, he is the sound guy. Again, and people have written to me when I mentioned this, saying that he's actually quite a well-known comedian. I did not know him. He is hilarious in this movie. Every line he gets is like actually laugh out loud, which is very rare in these movies. Usually, it's really groaning, groan-inducing, but he's actually funny. Um, and the way he kind of handles situations is funny. So they take the small crew. They go to this rural era. There's resistance at first, kind of a witness type situation, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and then she's then some a couple really creepy things happen early on. Where we learn, you know, oh, her mother, you know, is long gone from this community, and but people start saying, you know, oh, but she's still around, and there's a creepy spiritual kind of encounter early on in this film that's a, maybe misleading from where it's headed, but I don't want to ruin this, but like how Midnight Mass to me is just still one of the you know amazing things this year has like the church at the central um, component. There is a church in this in the middle of isolated kind of forest. And inside the church, I'm not going to say anything more than there is one of the most interesting horror things I've seen this year. Um, and it, so it uses the church and then there's something inside the church, almost kind of Lovecraftian in its design. And it's really cool. And so so on a hook level, I think this has all those hallmarks. What's hard with found footage, and I did see a lot of people warring online about this, about the rules of found footage. And mm-hmm. I think it's one thing to say you want to do something different. But when you do like something that's found footage, found footage, found footage, and then suddenly you're just suddenly in an OTS on somebody and it's nothing to do with found. It, people have to remember, yeah, but we get used to the, a certain kind of grammar, a certain kind of rules, and it's fine to fuck with that. But you also have to kind of keep humans understanding what they're how they're watching. And there's a few times in this one where it's, it definitely gets a little confused as the movie goes. But, you know, that that is a nitpick. I thought it was actually quite fun. 
and w- it goes to a place that's very interesting. It's it's hard to talk about because it has its big swing movie. It's not nice. like a little. I think I actually think you're gonna you, you know you, you might not love it, but I think you will like this one. I think you'll ha- you'll be surprised by kind of some of the more bonkers things it does. I do love my bonkers movies. And I, I will also say the Deep House did the same where it started out as a found footage and then it quickly shifted to not a found footage um, and stayed but that isn't way. is it for... always found footage down there? Because no. technically they bring that other camera rig with them. No, because there are times that they're looking at that camera. So it, it's definitely moments where it's not. It, it, Unless it there's cameras on their head and stuff. I, I feel like that yeah. one maybe I can't remember, but I felt like and... maybe they had other devices all over. I feel like the the part where they were meeting the gentleman at the lake was not found footage. I feel like it clicked out of found footage at it times. Might, it might have. And sometimes you can do that in subtle ways and we mm-hmm. don't really notice. It's when you do it like really draw attention in a key moment. And you're like, wait a minute, who's shooting? You know, it, that's when you can. I, th- I think it's a formula like like it, it is hard to get right. But part of it is like if you can really sell that this just feels kind of random, mm-hmm. uh, it sometimes is scarier is all I'll say because you don't see the hand of the creator in the same way as you do when you come out of found footage. So, but, but I don't think this is one, like I don't haven't heard many people talking about it. I think it maybe deserves a little bit more because it's more fun than you might expect. Woohoo. Okay. Um, well, this one has been on my watch list and now I have a reason to watch it. Um, so I'm going to jump in with um, something new that I am very excited about. I still have one more episode to go of the series, but it has definitely been the highlight of my last week. Um, so we talk about true crime on here occasionally um, when they kind of cross paths with her a little bit. And um, let me tell you about Curse of the Chippendales. Uh, okay. So I, um, this is on Discovery Plus. So I have Discovery Plus because I will watch any shark documentary that comes out. And if you want to see Shark Week, you see it on Discovery Plus. So I have Discovery Plus and occasionally I get like little updates of like, hey, we have added. And so last week I saw that, or it may have been a couple of weeks ago, I saw they had added Curse of the Chippendales. And I was like, is this a movie, a horror movie about killer Chippendales? Because I'm kind of in. No, no. It is a docu-series about all of the shit that went down with the Chippendales. Um, And it is fucking bonkers. So I'm going to take us back a little bit to my childhood and this series of VHS tapes that my parents used to rent for me called Unicorn Tales. Hmm. And this guy hosted Unicorn Tales, Nick, um, I can't even remember his last name. But I knew him very well as he hosted this TV show, Unicorn Tales, which were these little like song and dancey fairy tale numbers. They were really cute, like musical theater nerds would would love it um, when they were kids. And apparently, just after this guy finished Unicorn Tales, he bought touring rights to Chippendales off the guy who had originally created Chippendales, which was just an L.A. phenomenon at the time. Moved the show to New York City, started a whole new Chippendale show in New York City, and then shit started getting crazy. Hmm. And it's at the height of the 1980s. There's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of women. And then suddenly um, people start dying. And then they start finding that there are hits out on some of the dancers. 
And it is absolutely madness. And then rival companies pop up and there's hits out on some of the rival companies and no one knows who's doing any of this and it's fucking bonkers. And so um, this, I, as I said, I've got one episode left and this has just been something where like I'm rushing to get my work done at night so I can go finish figuring out what happened to the Chippendales. Um, and it is just capped. It's everything that you expect it to be. It is, it is the bonkersness of the Chippendales with murder and drugs and mayhem and hitmen. Yeah, it sounds um, like saying they'll have to adapt into a, you know. A so film. apparently Hulu already has the TV rights yeah. Um, yeah. is is what I heard. Um, because Magic Mike did so well. You just yeah. mix that with something a little more salacious. No, this is, it's very much like a whole, it's like Boogie Nights, but entirely with the Chippendales. Um, right. And it is wild. So I highly recommend curse of the chippendales um i have never i i realized i saw one of the knockoff shows um yeah. when i was when i got married uh a couple of my girlfriends and this is like the least me thing ever decided to take me to a place in washington dc called the hangar um and the hangar it was right next to the airport was a male strip club and I was so confused because it was just really sweaty guys um, dancing around. And then because I was there as like a bride to be, they pulled me up on stage and the guy handed me a towel and I got to towel off turbo was the guy's name. And I remember just being like, I wouldn't towel off any, this guy's like sweaty and I don't know him. And it was just a weird moment. You do know me. that's code for something, right? Telling off, off turbo. turbo. Tell off turbo, hashtag tell off turbo. We know what you mean, Becca. I okay. hope, I hope turbo danced to Tom Waits ice cream man, which was okay. by far the, it's the coolest part of turbo um, was that he did dance and he passed out. And I remember that he passed out ice creams and he handed me something with nuts. And I literally just kind of like oh, put it down on the oh, no. table and was yeah. like, this is weird, but yeah. So, um, but Curse of the Chippendales. It so is many so nut jokes worth- I almost just made. Right, there. I know. But I won't even say D's nuts. So we'll move on uh, to another. <laughs> do you think? Uh, I'm, do you think in middle school I never once said I'm allergic to nuts, and some jerk ass douchey thirteen year old said, "Are you allergic to D's nuts?" I. You think I've I, never I wasn't gotten there. that? I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. I have to play dumb here. <laughs> that was literally every response from like sixth through probably 12th grade. I think I probably got it a few times in college as well. Americans so, um, and Elric's still doing it. There you yeah, go. You know, yeah, I wasn't yeah. doing it. I was doing it in the voice of a Chippen, Chippendale ripoff. Are you allergic yeah. to D's nuts? Yeah, yes, yes. Saying. It's there. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, we'll leave that fun from your past. Uh, <laughs> to go back to- I wonder uh, whatever happened to Turbo. I hope he's doing well. Yeah, I don't know. I have have a bad feeling about Turbo during the pandemic, to be perfectly honest. If you're listening, Turbo, we apologize. Turbo, Um, if you used to dance at the hangar in Washington, D.C., I I hope you're doing well. I bet we're going to hear from a grandchild of Turbo. (laughs) He's going to be like, oh, he's retired. How fucking old he is, grandchild. He's put out to pasture. Oh, poor Turbo. They age quicker, remember. (laughs) When they're that hot, they age fast. Uh, Most of us just like to take our time very slowly. What the fuck else have you seen, Kane? <laughs> All right, let's keep talking about that. Um, I did, okay, I saw another found footage one, uh, this time from Thailand, probably the best of the three found footage ones, I think. Um, this is a film getting a lot of buzz called The Medium. Um, and it is, uh, so it's about a, a documentary crew are going to make a film about this local medium, and she's very normal and plain, and her whole thing is 
uh, everyone and a, a woman in her family gets uh, to have the like they're like shamans. They get to inherit the gift of this goddess, and she will a goddess that everyone prays to. But also, she becomes the conduit for this local village, and it's all very low key. And she's not like too out there. It's just very matter of fact, and she helps with the crops. And so, it's going to be a low key documentary. And there's a story that her sister didn't want to inherit this back in the day. Um, and then something happens, somebody dies and suddenly they're like, oh, is it going to get passed on? And they start noticing weird stuff happening to her niece. And it seems like perhaps the goddess is entering the niece now and she, and it's causing a bit of confusion. So the documentary kind of takes a left turn and they start following that. And quickly they realize more like the exorcist, something else, something darker has actually entered the niece and it is not going to be the goddess. And now this medium, she has to decide what to do, how to help. And there's a lot of, it kind of feels like a two hour version of like, almost like that VHS two sh- uh, kind of cult short with the, with just like big set pieces and wildness happening. A lot of people have compared it to the whaling. I think the whaling is a lot more creative and a lot more visually dynamic than mm-hmm. this. The only downside to this one, I think it's really well made. It's two hours and 10 minutes and there wasn't anything in it that really justified that for me. I felt like this could have been 80 minutes and been just as well, better. I probably even a little more tighter in a way. Um, but I do think people should see it. It is a good use of found footage. That's for sure. And I think it is pretty creepy. Um, it did. It, it wasn't, you know, my favorite of all the films I saw this week. There's one other I actually liked a little bit more, but, but it was definitely worth seeing. And that's on shutter. The wow. medium. The medium. Yeah. Okay, I have that one on my list as well. Well, uh, I'm going to round stories? out. No, no more uh, stripper okay. stories. I I'm, oh, you do have a couple of stripper. No, not not, not related to this episode. So. <laughs> um, so, um, the best the best, uh, the best exposition on Lost Highway I ever heard was from somebody in the strip club when I was like 20 years old, like right after I'd seen it, and and it was somebody in Vegas, and it was like she she had the best theory on Lost Highway. I was so impressed. So. I went to a female strip club in Las Vegas um, after it was uh, some type of horror convention. It was something horror I was in town for. I may have been touring a haunted house because I did this tour for Fango where I toured a bunch of haunted houses. And I was in Vegas again for that um, a number of years ago. But I, I was taken to a female strip club. While I was there, and I just remember that I, I was like sitting there, and I didn't really know what to do, and I was just like, "Yeah, this is cool, a really good pole dancing." And then all of a sudden, the stripper leaned over, and she goes, "Oh my god, I love your top!" And she literally just sat down next to me, and we ended up talking for like twenty minutes until she finally was like, "Fuck, I got to get back to work." And then that was it, and it was like I'd made a friend um, yeah. briefly. So yeah, um, I hope she's doing well as well. Yeah. Um, but I uh, continued on with my graphic novel reading this week and i got through lolo woods and the autumnal um, oh, you finished autumnal now? i finished autumnal Aut- I, I even looked up how to pronounce it properly like if you google it um there's uh-huh. a pronunciation autumnal autumnal um, which means of autumn or pertaining to autumn. So I'm going to yeah. start with Lolo Woods because um, Lolo Woods, it reminded me of home as kind of sad as that is. Um, it is set in a town called Shudder to Think, Pennsylvania, but it's clearly based off Centralia, Pennsylvania. Oh, and Centralia, there. Pennsylvania, yeah, is the coal mining town where um, a coal mining scene, a coal seam underground caught fire and basically the entire town is on fire. 
um, underground. Like you can walk through it and it just looks deserted and weird, but it's, you know, there's parts still of smoke it. coming up through the cracks. I, like I went there in winter one time because mm-hmm. I lived nearby in a nearby town for a year when I was in eighth grade. And so we went out a couple years later and it was cool. I took all these photos of like the smoke coming out between the cracks, even with snow. It's pretty, it's pretty strange and completely deserted. Yeah, and eerie. And I mean, that's the same town that Silent Hill is based on. Mm. Um, So Centralia has definitely been inspirational. Um, I stopped by um, on because I used to do the drive from my parents' home in Virginia up to New York City every couple of weeks when I would go down to visit them. And I drove off the highway one time and was like, I'm going to go see Centralia. Mm. Um, It was right after Silent Hill had come out and Mm. I'd read about it. And yeah, it's, it's wild and trippy. So this is definitely influenced by it where it's a coal mining community in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Um, and the town itself is on fire, but no one has left. They've just kind of left the areas that are burning. And there's all of this weird stuff that they have just kind of come to know. Like there are times that they see burning men walking through the woods and, mm-hmm. and the teens see them and they just kind of think of them as like, you know, ghosts. It's just kind of something that exists there. The story is focused on two girls' best friends. Um, they both seem to classify under LGBTQ. And uh, the story opens with them both in a movie theater waking up. And that is kind of our big hook going in. And you find this out all within the first two pages is that they uh, have have gone in to see a movie. It's a Rob Reiner film that they're there to see. I can't remember which one. Um, but they don't remember falling asleep. They remember walking in. They remember seeing the opening credits. And they don't remember falling asleep. But they're waking up as the closing credits are running. No one else is in the theater. One of them has mud on her shoes. And the other one's underwear is on Inside Out. And they're immediately like, what the fuck happened? And everybody who works at the theater is like, nothing. You guys fell asleep in the theater. We don't know what happened. Um, You guys didn't leave. You just slept in the front row for the entire movie. Sorry, you fell asleep. But the girls are really suspicious and know that something was up. And so it's kind of a premise of their investigation of trying to figure out what happened in that theater. What did they go through? Um, and it gets wild. There's these skinless men. There's other monsters that kind of populate the woods. There's witchcraft that gets involved in it. And it is just, I, I had a blast with this one. There is just so much. This is uh, put out by DC Comics imprint uh, Hill House, which is Joe Hill's um imprint through dc comics and i don't even know if this one keeps going but i'm definitely in to find out now um it was just a really that hook right there of like what happened in the theater just kept me moving forward throughout the entire story and again it was two um lgbtq girls in a small town so it was a real fascinating look at kind of small town america and coal mining country um something else Mm. that i really connected with Um, so continuing on, I have the autumnal, Mm -hmm. um, autumnal was sent to me by Daniel Krauss, who I have just always been a huge fan of his work. Um, this is his new comic out from Vault Comics, who I've been paying attention to since they did the plot a couple of years ago was a haunted house comic, um, series that I was really into. And I was excited to hear that he was working with him. Daniel wrote, most people know, cause he wrote the, the, book concept for Shape of Water, um, Troll Hunters. He's done work with uh, Guillermo del Toro in those capacities. Um, but he, I found him because of this amazing YA book called Rotters that I loved oh, yeah. long ago. Yeah. I've been talking about this one back to like Killer P.O.D. 
the days I've been talking about how great Rodgers is. He's also got a witchcraft book called Blood Sugar that I love. So um, yeah, Daniel Krause across the board, just super tight writer. But yeah, so this is his. Um, this The setup of this is that a um, really kind of down on their luck, living on the fringes of society, mom and daughter suddenly out of nowhere inherit this house from grandma, from the, the mom's mother. And the mom had moved out when she was nine years old. So she has no recollection of the town or really any of the people in it. And they get there and everybody is slightly off. Like it's a beautiful town. The house that they inherit is gorgeous. And mom and daughter are both like, fuck it. We live here now. This place is gorgeous. But everybody in town is really obsessed with the leaves and all of this weird stuff starts happening and there's a couple of deaths. And then all of a sudden the mom starts remembering things from her childhood that are just off to her. She remembers this one big accident at the roller skating rink where all these kids died. And suddenly she starts kind of piecing together what's going on at the same time that the daughter is starting to get the backstory and the legends of the town at school. And so you're kind of getting these two stories of how the mom is learning what's going on simultaneous to the daughter. This gets weird. And the biggest thing that I love about this in true Daniel Krause fashion, this one does not pull any punches. This is a fucking intense, gory gut-wrenching graphic novel. Like this goes for the throat, um, which I just loved. Like there was so much in this that I was just like, oh shit, I wasn't expecting that to happen. Like if you can have jump scares in a graphic novel, this did it. Um, And I was definitely not expecting for it to go where it went. All right. That's the one I wanted to borrow. I love the cover. Yeah, this one, I read this in one day. Um, That's how into it I was. Like the Lolo Woods, I definitely broke up over a couple of days because you need some time to digest. But autumnal, I burned through the entire thing. And I have a couple up on my list for next week as well. So continuing my graphic novel binge. Reader. I know, I know. I I actually, I've run out of ones that I had here at home. So I did a trip to the Burbank Library um, last night and picked up a whole bunch. So I'm jumping right back in. I even got some YA ones and one called Deep Dark Fears I'm pretty excited about. I read a couple of stories out of it and it's really good. So I'm excited to to keep on going. Uh, Okay, I'll close out quickly with the last horror one. Uh, And my favorite of this week, um, this one, Actually, apparently it's going to be the uh, Oscar inclusion for Malaysia. So the last one I talked about was Indonesian. This is Malaysian. And this is very folk horror, very minimal, creepy, poetic, all those things. Uh, I, this is a really terrific little movie. Um, it is set in this, you know, I, I wouldn't even call it a village because it's like there's one hut that uh, this woman lives in with her two kids. But it opens on this little girl covered in blood and mud. Uh, she is standing in front of a big fire. You don't have any context. Then she goes up to some a body that's buried under a shallow grave under dirt, and she just starts stabbing at it. And then she walks off into the darkness. And you're like, "What is this movie about?" She these this cuts to this you know the, the next day with this uh, two kids. One's more like a young teenager, a younger boy, and this mom. Uh, and uh, they live very remotely, obviously, and this little girl stumbles across them and they take her in and they feed her. She doesn't say anything. She's covered in all this muck. And then she starts getting really weird and dark and to the point where I'll go up to, if you don't want to know anything, turn off quickly, but this is pretty early on. Uh, she stands above them and she says, um, by the time the next moon rises, you will all be dead. 
And then she does something really surprisingly violent and shocking. And it's just one of those openings where you're like, whoa, what is this movie? Especially considering it's set in Malaysia and I don't have much of a context, especially in the middle of nowhere um, and in terms of the scene. What and was the title of this one it's again? Called, it's Okay, so it's a little hard. It's R-O-H, so Ro, but it also is, if you look up, it's also Soul, S-O-U-L. But it's ROH is the actual title. But if you R-O-H. On letters, ROH. Okay. So it's it's brand new. It's only like 82 minutes. So it's like, to me, it kind of hits that sweet spot. If you're going to do something in the poetic and then the sparse, this one does it. So ba- so the, what the mom thinks is like, we have to kind of hide that this girl was ever here. But of course, there is a legend of somebody roaming the forest uh, who will hunt at all costs. And this guy shows up with one eye, like one milky eye. And he's been looking for this girl and it starts to, then there's also a a local woman. So there's only about five characters. There's also an older local woman giving them advice on what they should do. Um, She's, she's from like the nearby village. And, and so you're not sure if you're watching like a witchcraft movie or a demon in the woods movie or what it is exactly, but it really is satisfying. And I really liked where it went. I don't want to say too much more because it is so minimal. Um, I found it to be like, if you're into folk horror, rural, isolated, creepy, demon spirit type movie it's it really kind of delivered i thought it was really cool um and i I guess it had been getting good reviews i just hadn't heard really about it so this was a blind watch uh that sounds really cool yeah yeah i've seen a couple of malaysian horrors not a lot and so um, this was very stylish it's like i don't want to say terrence malick that's the cliche but it's in that kind of like it's very made in that very minimal poetic way but then it has some really dark imagery that's really interesting so nice um so i dug it excellent okay well we um are excited to talk to our guest because we've had him on on prior shows um that we've done before and i always leave the conversations with him with a long list of movies that i need to watch that i knew nothing about so let's give it over to joe rubin from vinegar syndrome We are super excited to bring on tonight's guest. Elric and I have had many conversations with him throughout the years, but we are super excited to find out um, what Vinegar Syndrome is up to and talk about some of their upcoming releases. Welcome, Joe Rubin, the co-founder and director of acquisitions for Vinegar Syndrome. Thanks for having me back. Oh my God. First time here. First time here. Yeah. We've had, you know, many other incarnations of podcasts, but this is the first time for Colors of the Dark. So. Oh, I thought you meant first time here as in like us on Skype. (laughs) We're all on Zoom. (laughs) I was like, this is depressing. First time on Zoom altogether. First time on Zoom. Oh my gosh. So, how have you been, Joe? How was your pandemic? Uh, Mostly uneventful. No, well, I hey, vinegar syndrome was still like keeping me super excited throughout the pandemic. You guys released some Stephanie Rothman, um, and and there's a bunch of titles that you've had out recently that I want to talk about. Like, I want to start with what is Devil's Story? Because somebody tagged me in this <laughs> and was like, "Holy shit, Becky, you're gonna love this." What is Devil's Story? Uh. All right, that, that's a question that can be answered in a number of ways. <laughs> um, I, I think that the best, the way that I that I used to describe Devil Story, because when we acquired it, I was the only one in the company who had heard of it, let alone seen it. Uh, and it, I, I was basically like pitching it to everyone as 
it's the French answer to Spookies. Oh, but that doesn't really do it justice. And maybe it's a slight against Spookies all at the same time. Uh, but Devil's Story is an extremely rudimentary, low rent, low budget, and I say this all in a very loving way. Uh, French countryside horror movie of sorts that involves a guy like a mutant hunchback in an SS jacket, his gypsy mother, a shipwreck that pops out of a mountain and basically spawns a mummy that comes to life and then has like a vampire woman. And all the while there's a satanic horse that's impossible to be shot despite dozens and dozens of attempts. And it's all set over the course of a night (laughs) into the following day. Well, I'm sold by the cover, which appears to be the ghoulish looking character in the jacket with a gun. Um, but yeah, that that was definitely a hell of a synopsis you just provided. So um, this is uh, already in my Amazon queue. I'm excited to check this one out. That always What happens to me is I'll track a movie down that I've never heard of and I'll finally get it and it'll be a really shitty copy. And a week later, Vinegar Syndrome is putting it out on like high def Blu-ray. And I'm always like, oh, I've got to wait now. It's that happened was my, like four movies in a row. That was one of them. That was my vineyard um, where I had finally tracked down a copy of it. And then suddenly it was like, oh, God, it looks so much prettier now. Yeah. And was, you get, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, no, you go. Uh, I, I was at dinner with uh, someone maybe a month ago, and he asked about two films. And they were both films that I was planning to release. Just as like a, a, a random occurrence that just films that he'd wanted to see since he was a kid that he ah. had never gotten around to seeing. And uh, they both happened. Granted, they both happened to be part of a specific subgenre, uh, but uh, all the same, very, very random occurrence. So here's our new recommendation, which Elric just discovered last week. And we talked about on our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, Nightlife. Um, is I just watched it today and was like completely blown away by it. So um, good. That's one. Definitely get it on your radar if it's it, not already. Do you know if that one's got any rights issues, Joe? Uh, that's like 89 or yeah, so. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's owned by a studio. I can't remember which one offhand. Hmm. Oh. It, yeah, it's one of those ones that like the cover makes it look like this kind of goofy, almost silly. That's why I didn't watch it initially. And then, and then you watch it and it is goofy and silly at the start. But then once these uh, teenagers become zombies, it's all played really straight. It's actually really creepy. And it feels like it's a lost night of the creeps kind of a spinoff or something. And so it's weird that it's so hard to see a good copy of it. I don't guess. I think it might be Sony. That okay. Oh, damn. Now you guys have done some stuff with the studios before. Or is it just generally like difficult to, to get the studio titles? It's a very different animal than dealing with independent producers or even like we've licensed a number of films from film rise, such as mm-hmm. trauma, uh, and you know the attitude is just very different like Mm -hmm. we we've had a great uh relationship so far with mgm we've uh licensed a bunch of titles from them we're working on some more at the moment that could be very exciting and mostly horror focused Uh, and uh every studio deal is an uphill battle because ultimately you know, the interests of the studios are the new films that they're 
producing and releasing. So anyone coming and saying, hey, we want you to dig out a bunch of catalog titles that you don't care about that you're really not going to make that much money on is like, yeah, we'll get around to it when we feel like it. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, well, we value these as highly in terms of monetary as like a new release. So unless you're going to give us like $100,000, go away. Uh, so it's, it's definitely difficult. Uh, in sometimes we've lucked out, like we have probably pestered MGM. I, I know we have, uh, much more than they would ever like, uh, <laughs> to get some of the titles that we've gotten out of them, like rush week. And, mm-hmm. uh, as just as an example off the top, off the top of my head, And usually it's been like, we will say, okay, here's 50 titles that we want. And they'll come back and be like, how about these five out of this 50? Like, Mm -hmm. okay, fine. These five. All right, here's 20 more. And just like go through this process month after month after month until we come up with a a list that they deem acceptable enough to do a contract on. And so like, you know, a bunch of stuff like we've asked about in the past and they'll say no and they'll say no and they'll say no. And then eventually they'll say, okay, fine. And there's others that we've asked about many, many times and they just still say no. And is the no, just so I understand is the no, because at some point they think they would get a better deal or do it themselves. Or is that? No, it it, usually with studios and this isn't just with MGM. This is just like in general, the reason that studio owned titles are not out even from boutique labels, that are handling studio titles, it's usually to do with a rights issue or a clearance issue. More often than not, it's a music clearance issue. Right. Like there's a title that we have wanted from MGM for like since the first time we ever did a deal with, with them. And we've asked about it every single time. And the problem is they can't find the music cue sheet. So they can't mm. do anything with it because, you know, let's say that's a royalty owed on the, on, on the soundtrack and they don't know who to pay or what to pay. And there's also the concern of what if the music wasn't cleared for home video? It might've oh. been, you know, this, this is a film that was produced before home video was really a thing. And uh, therefore it may not have been cleared for home video or it might've been cleared only for VHS. This is why I'll never have looking for Mr. Goodbar on Blu-ray ever. <laughs> yeah, ba- basically. Ever. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> because that's, of that soundtrack. True. It's an amazing. I, well, speaking of uh, impossible tasks, I always heard back in the day that the most impossible uh, was the Warhol Foundation. And mm-hmm. so seeing this, uh, you know, Blood for Dracula and uh, Flesh for, for Frankenstein. Frankenstein releases makes me curious how those deals came about. I mean, with what you can tell us, the Marcy films. Sure. Uh, that came about through a lot of prodding <laughs> and they're actually not held by the Warhol foundation. They're huh. held by Paul Morrissey himself. Oh, wow. Uh, he had a longstanding deal with the Warhol foundation that since expired and uh-huh. the rights became his and his alone. Uh, Basically, it was a lot of convincing of the right people in his circles to finally do the the necessary final convincing to get it done. And luckily now everyone's very excited, very happy in in his world. So that's, uh, it's been a very uh, positive outcome. And those are coming out in 4K, correct? 
Yes, yes. Severn released Dracula back in uh, June, I think. And Mm -hmm. then we have Frankenstein uh, in stock as of the Black Friday sale, which is now about two and a half weeks away. Holy shit. Shocking. Yeah, it's shocking to think about that. Somebody's oh my God. Chase. He had, a, he had a movie. I met him once at film school and he, we spent a day with him and he was, he was a character. That's all I'll say. Uh, he, 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 but he always talked about his last movie, Spike of Bensonhurst. And I've oh, always yeah. wanted to see it. I've never been able to see a copy of that film. So I'm not sure why it's so hard to find. We had a VHS of it at mm. uh, Odd Obsession, my video store. Yeah. Yeah. I remember uh, Odd Obsession. And, uh, yeah, that w- w- it was always like a running joke. Like someone when someone actually rented Spike of Bensonhurst, <laughs> uh, I, I know I watched it, and I do not remember a thing about it. Yeah, no, he was really proud of it though. He kept talking about it as the only movie he made that was worth the damn, and he was very <laughs> not very happy about his Warhol days in the meeting we had. So, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of his reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, the Frankenstein looks incredible. We heard wow. the 2D restoration at Beyond Fest is sort of a, mm-hmm. a last minute add-on, and the 3D, the specifically the 3D alignment uh, restoration was performed by the 3D Film Archive, who are probably the best group doing 3D restorations. Period. You know, whenever you see a 3D restoration from Kino, it's 3D Film Archive almost always. Uh, like basically all the main 3d restorations the good 3d restorations are done by the 3d film archive and Hmm. they spent literally months working on it we they were we we were uh panicking because they were like at the very end like you know our due date was coming like oh we still have like you know these changes to make and these reels (laughs) have to be redone and uh yeah, but it, the 3D, if anyone's ever actually seen a print of it in 3D, no. the quality of the 3D is so much better even than the prints at this point. Oh, cool. Wow, that is incredible. It, yeah, but I feel like some of those movies, like seeing that movie not in 3D, it's like less less exciting. So I, I'm really excited to see that film. I want to uh, fuck a gallbladder in 3D. Yeah. Yes. No doubt. Um, Out of so context, I, that's something. It sounds just weird, I know, but it, it's amazing. Um, that film is always a nice jaw dropper. Yeah. I also want to know about The Laughing Dead. This is another one that I had heard of and I thought I had seen and I realized I was confusing it with Night of the Laughing Dead, which seems to be a much different movie. Um, and I have not seen The Laughing Dead. What is this? The Laughing Dead is probably one of the top five films that I'm most excited mm. that we've released this year. Wow. It's uh, so I, I don't know if either of you are all uh, that interested in Indonesian horror of the 70s and early 80s. We've oh, definitely yeah. seen kind of the Satan slaves and um, the queen, like some of the ones that were remade. We've definitely checked out a chunk of. So I'm, I'm thinking more of like the colorful like surreal stuff that probably has more in line with hong kong movies of that era without the without like the the fighting and action elements we definitely have seen a lot uh, of cat five enough that yeah we get the aesthetic Mm -hmm. yeah so uh laughing dead was made by an indonesian guy who came to the u.s and basically made a wild, colorful, ridiculously gory Indonesian style horror film, but in the U S wow. Yes. In, 
and it has incredible effects by uh, John Carl Buechler. 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 Yeah. Beckler or Buechler. I never. I, I always feel like I'm getting his name wrong. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he he did the effects, and it's huh. some of the most uh, absurd gore effects of his entire career. It definitely, I think, exceeding Mausoleum. Holy oh, shit, I'm oh. looking at the pictures of it on just the scroll on your website. This is fucking bonkers. So the 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 best uh, thing to, I think, summarize the tone of the film is there's an extended sequence in which a severed head is used as a basketball. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sold. Carpenter's in. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, I, I love this movie. I think that it's like just so ridiculous and fun and weird. And it just goes in every single possible direction, like from just the religious horror to uh, outrageous gore to like weird comedic elements that don't really quite work, but just make the experience all the more strange. Um, One other thing that, and I know it's not hard that I wanted to ask about because it was at beyond fest and, was obviously getting a, a bit of press was the New York Ninja and the kind of how this was a unfinished film that got uh, reconstructed and reshot. Like, can you just tell nothing us a little bit about reshot. that? Story? Oh, nothing's reshot. Okay. So there was a company called 21st century distribution that uh, was run by uh, co-owned by a guy named Arthur Schweitzer. And they produced films like executioner two Mm-hmm. which I highly recommend, especially if anyone's a fan of don't go in the woods. Oh, yeah. uh, it's a Jim Bryan's basically shameless ripoff of the exterminator, uh-huh. uh, but made for like a one hundredth of the budget. <laughs> uh, so basically they had had a string of successes on like these no budget uh, action and horror films. And Schweitzer decided that he wanted to, do that again and they had made a lot of money on kung fu films as well like they'd done a lot of imported uh kung fu releases and uh john Liu, who was a sort of a uh, known but not really well known but not like famous uh fighter uh was getting more into directing and uh he ended up making he directed for schweitzer this uh, comedy vigilante revenge supernatural almost in times uh, kung fu film but all in the midst of this 21st century went bust and mm. the film was never finished so years later like decades later we acquired all of the assets that Arthur Schweitzer had through his subsequent company called Cinevest. And that was one of the things that we got. And it was literally like dozens and dozens and dozens of unedited rolls of 35 millimeter negative that for years, uh, one of my partners, Ralph, uh, who actually really put up or did the acquisition himself and Mm -hmm. put up the money himself to buy uh, the Cinevest uh, library, he was wanting to do something with it for years. And he was like, Oh, we should scan it all. And then we should like offer it up to film students and like figure out, you know, if someone can like easily have like a competition. <laughs> and it was this, this daunting thing because there was no sound, there was no script. 
we didn't really know what it was beyond Schweitzer describing it as like Superman, but with ninjas. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, so, you know, like Ryan, one of my partners and I were always like, ah, we're never going to do anything with that. It'll just sit on the shelf. And then Curtis, who uh, has worked for us now, I think for about four or five years, uh, said, well, what if I try to do it? And we were intrigued. So we're like, okay, fine. If you want to, you know, try to figure, put this mess and puzzle together, have at it. And he did. He, mm-hmm. he did a great job. Like he really, he basically took uh, a, a, what amounted to, and this is a bad metaphor, but I'll make it anyway, uh, raw ingredients and turn into something that's actually like a real film. Mm. Wow. That's cool. That, Very that's, curious, yeah. Yeah, that sounds like an awesome history, and I'm anxious to see kind of where it lands. And it has a bunch of, uh, so as I said, there was no sound, so and there was no script. Uh, so all of the dubbing was uh, done by actors recently, and part of the idea there was to assemble a cast of people who were recognizable to the genre film world. So, you know, Oh my God, that is awesome. Cynthia Rothrock in there. I noticed that. Yeah. She, uh, Linnea Quigley, uh, Leon Isaac Kennedy, Michael Berryman, uh, Ginger Lynn, they all have, uh, uh, featured voice roles in it. That is, that is such a cool concept and such a cool way to handle it. Um, so yeah, this sounds amazing. If you're at home, you can't see it, but Becca, she is frothing at the mouth, chomping at the bit and trying to jump through the screen to talk about one particular title. I am. Oh my God. (laughs) So I, I literally wrote it in giant letters on the back of my note sheets tonight. It's top to talk about. Um, so, okay, Joe, let's talk about ticks. So this is one of my absolute favorite films of all time. So much so that, um, about 10 years ago, probably when Elric owned a film cafe here in Los Angeles, he was like, if you ever want to screen something, you're welcome to. And so I convinced him to have a screening night of ticks. Um, and we showed it to a whole crowd of people. I hadn't seen it. That was my first. Yeah, that was your first time seeing it. And uh, this is definitely one that I've been kind of proselytizing for years. This and, and for some reason, slugs are kind of the two that I get most kind of like, oh, you know, I watched this because of Becca, um, which I love. If I have to take that to the grave, I'm good with that. So why ticks and holy shit, a 4K. <laughs> so this goes back to the earlier uh, bit about uh, licensing stuff from studios and mm-hmm. how much easier and often more pleasant it is to try to work with independent production companies or smaller studios. So Tix is owned by FilmRise, who we've licensed a lot of stuff from, uh, like Trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Tix was one of the films that we first started working with them and licensing titles from them like we had on our want list. And they said, okay, sure, we'll license it to you, but we don't know where any materials are. And so it was years and years and years of not relations that many, even maybe three years of every couple of months saying, have you found anything on ticks? <laughs> and then, you know, we sort of gave up on it and moved on. And then out of the blue, the guy who worked with over there, some email was like, the lab just found the material on ticks. They forgot to tell us that they had it. 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> How do you just find it? Like literally I'm picturing like Indiana Jones style vaults where like you're moving cardboard boxes around and then it's suddenly like, oh, I found the box of ticks. Kind of. I mean, it, I, I've been in a lot of film vaults and uh, many of them do kind of look like the Indiana Jones uh, motif. I've actually had people have gone there like into film vaults with me for the first time. And that's one of the comments that they've made on numerous occasions. It's kind of a sad cliche. But you, you see like these like long aisles that are just you, know, you need like ladders to climb up and get things. And there's seemingly in many of these places, no organization. I mean, they are organized to some extent, depending on where they are. But uh, yeah, uh, so they found the material. And so we figured, you know, let's jump on the opportunity to finally get it done. And then I went there to pick it up. And they'd pulled everything. And the list that they had sent me was kind of confusing. It looked like there were like doubles of some reels, but there mm-hmm. was no explanation for why there would ever be a double. And so when I got the material, uh, we were, I was going through it and it was like, this is notations of different versions. So we discovered that uh, we, well, we, we happened upon a longer version Oh, whoa. So it's, it's uh, just, just so no one gets uh, the wrong idea. It's not more gore or effect stuff. It's all character and plot development. I'll take that. 20 but minutes of uh, Howard. Fingers crossed it's yeah. all panic. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about two minutes in the first third of the film that's like more about setting up the kids mm-hmm. and their relationship. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, this version might have turned up on VHS somewhere, but at least in the last couple of decades, it's not been released in any format and certainly never on any disc format. This movie, um, when I first saw it, probably mid to late nineties, when it first came out, what was the year on this one? 93. 93, that would have been a route. When I saw it, um, I had rented it on VHS and we did a double feature with this film called Mansquito, um, which I, I, for some reason, had seen as like this perfect double feature. So we got them both. And um, I remember watching them with my friend Ben. And I didn't realize at the time, but it was just my perfect of everything because it was Brian Usner produced. Tony Randall, who I, I was not as familiar with at the time, but secretly Tony had been making all of my favorite movies um, that I was watching at the time, not even realizing and connecting the dots. And I just fell in love with this one. Um, Alfonso Ribeiro's character, Seth Green playing the sensitive poet kid who's got trauma. There was an Amy Dolan's. There's just so much fun casting in it. I think that, you know, Tony as a whole gets a, is really underappreciated for the films that he's made. Yeah, we are, a, sequel, a sequel director, somebody who comes in and just bent, knocks it out of the park with a number of sequels. Yeah, we're big fans of his Amityville film. Um, I, I like, love that one. I think we actually yeah. talked about that on, one, on some episode that I was on, on uh, Shockwaves. Yeah. Uh, it's About Time is the second best entry in the series. Oh my God, yeah. It's so well composed and such a clever uh, presentation across the board. Yeah, like Tony is just, as, as a sequel director, he's really good. Yeah, and uh, I, now I have to go back and make sure that you meant Amityville 2 being the best, right? 
Amityville 2 is the best. Absolutely. Okay, good. Because I would have yes. probably walked off the show had you. No, I, 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 I would say it's. Two, two is an incredible piece of film. Yeah, two is great. It's About Time is the second best. Yeah. And then the original is the third. And then maybe the one with the lamp thing. That thing's uh, pretty fun. The lamp one is about light, is what I always call that one. <laughs> After it's that, great. it's a hodgepodge of whatever uh, you can get. The but. doll maker, the dollhouse one is pretty good. And you have all these. Vinegar Syndrome actually has all these available, right? We have the four possessed object movies. Which are the four best the sequels. Yeah, the ones that matter. The lamp, the time, which is the clock, the dollhouse, and what is possessed in the fourth one? Uh, the dollhouse is the, the mirror one. Right? The mirror, the mirror is mirror. a new generation. Yeah. Okay, I don't think I've seen the mirror one, guys. So um, I'm going to. I don't know if this. I have either. I can't remember. I get. I get mixed is, up. The mirror one is interesting from an LA perspective because it's like it's it's set at the dawn of the gentrification of downtown LA and Skid Row, and that's like a central element to the film. it's it's one of the many like yuppies living in lofts in downtown LA in the late eighties and early nineties, but it makes the dynamic of like, there's the yuppies in the loft, but then there's also the homeless outside Mm -hmm. uh, as like a a pretty prominent aspect of the narrative. Um, There's another one I need to ask about because, so I couldn't go to the all nighter at the new Bev this year. And I, but I pay very close attention to what everyone's watching, especially because Phil's programming and he's, and he promised he'd program things that people wouldn't have seen in theaters otherwise lately. And so, you know, and some of them I couldn't tell what the read was, but one film, every single person that I followed just was blown away this night by a movie I'd never heard of. And that is called Nothing Underneath. And all I know is it has a Donald Pleasance role, but like everyone was seemed really charged about it that night. And then I noticed, of course, I start looking up for a shitty copy, and then I realize you guys are putting it out. I was like, okay, I can wait. So tell me, what is Nothing Underneath? Nothing Underneath is another film. You keep on talking and bringing up these films that took us years and years to get. Uh, it's it's a Jallo that I have loved ever since the first time I saw it, probably about fifteen years ago. Uh, it's very heavily slasher influence, which is probably mm-hmm. why I like it so much. Mm. Uh, but it's basically this guy who's a forest ranger at Yellowstone and has for reasons that are never explained or even brought up beyond like the contrivance of this is what propels the initial aspect of the plot, uh, has a telepathic connection to his sister who is a model in Italy and he senses that she's being maybe murdered by a scissors killer. <laughs> so maybe, he, maybe murdered. Well, he's not sure. So <laughs> okay. he, he goes, so he like drops everything and just flies right to Italy. I think it's in Mil- Yeah. It's in Milan. And he can't, she's disappeared. He can't find her. So as Jolly inevitably go, you know, the scissors killer begins to strike again, but maybe the scissors killer is actually his sister after all. And that's the vision that he saw. And he is, uh, enlists the help of a disaffected about to retire detective played by Donald Pleasance, who has the uh, film stealing scene of eating plain pasta at Wendy's <laughs> and explaining that he can't, he and he's asked why do you like why are you having plain pasta and he says i can't have any sauces the color of blood yeah okay now i see why everyone was pro- they probably brought down the house 
Oh yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, but that entire scene is just wonderful. Like Donald Pleasant's eating pasta in Wendy's. What wow. I love is your explanation about a psychic, you know, connection and how bonkers that might sound to people. It's like, but that's got nothing. Not that I'm going to spoil it, but it's got nothing on the reason why the killer is killing in the movie Trauma. It's it should be on all the posters. It should just say you need to watch this so you can okay. learn about the backstory. It is the so greatest. So why is ever. the killer killing in Trauma? Or I'm do never going to know. You have to watch the, the. It's the greatest. I mean, I'm not just saying that. It's, this is better than the dog flashback and Hills Device too. It is just one of those moments where you're like, this is fucking brilliant. Might be one of my favorite moments in any Argento movie. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag as a movie, but it's also really fun. And I think it will play now better than when it came out. It's just my guess. I don't know. Have you shown this one live at all, Joe? No, we have not. It feels like uh, this would play really well with the crowd. But uh, what's exciting about our edition, and this is actually the world premiere of this particular version of it. So the, the like it seems every single Argento film, it was produced with an Italian version and an export version in mind. Hmm. And the export versions were pretty much always shorter. They would cut some expository dialogue sequences just to like keep them more reasonable in runtimes. Uh, and for the most part, these scenes would have been shot with Italian actors speaking Italian, not always because he did shoot a lot of movies just with English speaking actors, but this being his first and only movie made entirely in the U S with an entirely American cast, everyone spoke English, hmm. but for years and years and years, like since the film was completed, the export version, which is the only version that has the actual live audio of the actors doing their own lines, and it's 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 well worth hearing because it's a great cast, uh, was missing a few minutes of again expositories, dialogue scenes of no you know gore and such, but uh, where there was no known English audio source for these scenes, and thanks to Michael Felsher and Vincent Pereira. Uh, we were able to finally find the never heard English audio for those scenes. Oh, so cool. we have been able to reconstruct the film and uh, Michael Felcher actually went through the task of like balancing the audio and basically remixing it. So it would sound consistent. So we have, uh, created not really, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say created but we have recreated reconstructed the complete english audio for the film that has never been available in any edition ever released period and there are great actors i mean yeah we got brad doroff in there asia argento obviously is the lead is it ah. piper laurie as the yep, piper laurie in a uh, really great role yeah and james russo Oh, James Russo, nice. yeah, that's right. And and a reggae band, which isn't something you always <laughs> assume you'll see in an Argento movie. So you know, I definitely would not have expected that one. Double it with popcorn and you're good. So Joe, I'm curious, um, just because I always like to ask this whenever we have kind of our boutique label distributors on, what were kind of your best sellers of the last year or two that, you know, the holy shit, these exploded? And what were some titles that didn't perform as well, but people really need to check out? Uh, let me have a look. Uh, so I'll just go in random order. I'm just going to look at the site and go through the titles that, how about, how about I just like, here are the titles that I think you should watch. Excellent. I will totally take that. Okay. So in reverse order from most recent to, uh, oldest, 
I'm going to skip the October ones. Uh, Shallow Grave, which is one of our September titles. Uh, it's, I, I guess I would, I, I would classify it as one that I was hoping would catch on more, I think, than it has, just because mm-hmm. it's a bit more esoteric, I think, that people might expect. So it doesn't quite conform to being a slasher or a thriller or a mystery or an action film, but it has elements of all of those things. Hmm. Uh, to use a very cliched term, it's hugely Hitchcockian. Like it's pretty clear that everyone involved is doing their Hitchcock tribute down to the fact that it opens with a parody of the psycho shower scene. Hmm. Uh, but it's a really great movie. And uh, I think that it's best going into it kind of blind because knowing too much about the intricacies of it, like it's not about like, you know, like it's, it's not a murder mystery or anything like that. Like, you know who the killer is, you know what their motivations are, but it plays out really, really well. And it has, I think a real like effective gut punch ending that maybe you don't, see coming maybe you do but it's it, it's handled extremely well i think see i skipped that one because i thought i'd seen it but now that i click on it i haven't seen it. just because the title i i've seen two different films called shallow grave neither of them are this movie <laughs> so yeah, it, it, it's a generic title and it's yeah. probably not the best thing they could have called it but i think that it's a it's a very underappreciated film that really deserves uh some more attention uh all right Auntie Lee's Meat Pies. Uh, this Auntie Lee's Meat Pies. Yes. This looks sexy and confusing. Well, but um, and this was announced. I hadn't heard of this one either. <laughs> I heard this recently, and a lot of people were like, "They've been waiting for this forever." And this this seemed to have a cult following. Like, and I, I see some of the actors, and it must be part of the reason. Yeah, Karen Black, Pat Morita, uh, Michael Berryman. Mm. Uh, what year is it? Like 80, 90, 92. 91. Okay, 91. Yeah, shot, in, shot in 90, finished in 91, probably yeah. released in 92. And it's it, it falls into a particular fetish of mine, which is horror <laughs> movies made by porn people. Mm. Uh, that so, seems like the perfect vinegar syndrome. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's everything, yeah. Uh, so this uh, this film was the second and final attempt by the porn company Excalibur Films to go into the general release market. What was uh, their first attempt? Dr. Caligari, the Steven Sadian film. Which I love. That one. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. Okay. So the second half of Auntie Lee's Meat Pies basically feels like they tried to do a Seadian film. Wow. So it gets real fucking weird. It goes complete. If you look at the screenshots, you see some of the sets that turn up in the second half. It goes complete abstract. Wow. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm looking at some of them now, like the colors, it gets all red and blue. This is wild. So yeah, like the first half is kind of like goofier and then in the second half, it just goes surreal. There's like an adult baby in a crib made out of bones. Uh, very elaborate, like needlessly, co- pointlessly complicated death sequences but are, that are all the more interesting for it. Uh, and it just, it, it has like a, 
it, it's definitely the type of movie that could only have been made by the people who made it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I know that probably sounds pretty vague, but uh, <laughs> Joe Robertson, who directed it, who also produced Dr. Caligari. So there's probably a certain level of like his influence playing into Dr. Caligari and Dr. Caligari's influence playing into here. But uh, he actually had his background in horror before doing a 25 year stint in sex films. He had uh, produced the slime people and the crawling eye. Mm-hmm. And then uh, from about 1968, 69 to the mid 90s was doing nothing but sex films. And, you know, and and some really interesting stuff, but a lot of just like generic programmer schlock because he didn't care. Uh, but Antilles Meat Pies was another one that took a bit to get, and I'm very pleased with it and uh, would uh, love for more people to at least give it a try. Wow, good title. And, uh, guess I'll do a couple more if that's all right. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Oh my gosh, yeah. Literally, um, you're selling DVDs as uh, you say these because I am making my own list right now, and Auntie Lee's just went at the top. Um, as soon as you said, from the people who brought you Dr. Caligari, I was there. And because I'm on your website, people should, uh, just in case you don't mention Tough Guys Don't Dance, to me, that's that's one of the releases of the year, in my opinion, uh, of, of any company, getting Norman Mailer and my dad, Wingshauser, all together. <laughs> uh, and, a, and a bunch of women's heads and, and bags and the worst line read in the history of the movie. And yet, the, the only reason I'm bringing it up here is I think a lot of horror people maybe not haven't watched this movie, and yet it has horror elements, but it also has... It has this reputation that it's a joke of a movie because of the bad line read, but it actually has some really great stuff in it. It's actually totally a really interesting. Lawrence Turney's really good in that movie. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's, all, it's just a really fun time as well. Yeah, I feel like this is one that I would love to play this to a crowd, you know, and I think it would be so much fun. And I think it's one of Wing's best performances, so... And we were really happy to actually get him for an interview. We were all nervous that because like we had heard from someone else that he wanted a lot of money for his honorarium, and we talked to him, and he was like, "I'll do it." And he was really nice. He was that's great. really he was, cool. He was so accommodating and happy to talk about it. So, and especially cool because he's actually alive, which makes yeah. like this is coming after everyone for a whole day, basically. You know, it's thought he was deceased. So we are very happy that Wings is with us. And there's a documentary being made about him, which makes me happy. I can't see him anymore without seeing you uh, because that comparison has been made. So I've only much. seen like, it. I've only seen it like twice on certain stills. That's it. Otherwise, if you just saw us moving around, you wouldn't think it at all. Uh, he's a lot cooler than me. He can go a lot bigger. <laughs> Uh, but it is so, it really is a terrific film so yeah definitely uh and and that one i think actually has been uh performing about as well as we would expect so i'm, I'm okay good that uh so the next uh sort of uh the next one that i want to call attention to is the lamp yeah i've this one i swear i've seen before i remember it being gory and having a genie in it i think yep. it was on a double disc back yes. in the day right okay yeah yeah, it was on a bare bones double feature with the Godsend. Yeah, uh, and it's a film again that I saw like years ago. It's an MGM title, and I was like, "This movie is just incredible. Why doesn't it have the loaded special edition it deserves?" So we licensed it and gave it the loaded special edition it deserves. 
Nice. Uh, and I think we made like an hour long making of documentary about it. Wow. Dude as well. Was there an interesting story about this one? Like, cause I, I remember seeing it, but it was a long time ago now. When oh it, yeah. It's, it's, it's a total, it's a regional film. It was oh, cool. yeah. Texas. Uh, it, it's full of Texas charm. Uh, it has two deaths involve people being split in half, mm-hmm. uh, which is a nice addition. The genie is great. That's what I remember. He has green eyes. I remember yep. that, that they kind of glow. Yeah. And as one of you said, it is quite gory for mm-hmm. its, uh, for its era, especially having been made in the mid eighties when the MPA was like really eviscerating pretty much any horror movie that had like more than like a squirt of blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, this thing just goes all out with death sequences that are not just bloody but like actually really fun and creative and it, it's a film that i would love to actually see in a theater someday because i'm sure it would play really well on on, on screen maybe nice. maybe we all got to do it together at yeah USC. i like USC the idea of bringing screening. this kind of stuff to usc <laughs> uh, it does that, showing the lamp <laughs> uh being regional hard does that mean because uh, one of my favorite things that you guys put out in the last you know year or two is the homegrown horror box set that we we, mm-hmm. we showed winter beast on one of our screens yep. Winter Beast um, is fucking baddie. Yeah, and and it's and those kind of sets are always interesting because they'll always be. I always feel like if there's three films, like one of them you'll love, one you might hate, but you don't know which one is going to be which because some people we all react differently. But it does that mean because that was a part one? Do you guys envision more of those? We do. Okay. Uh, we're working on one for next year that's going to be more thematically focused. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I'd, I'd love to do more and more of them. The, the problem is it's often tough to, f- like, you, you can't just, or I mean, I don't know, maybe we could, but what we're trying to do with this series is gather films that may have nothing in common, mm-hmm. but are movies that are by either one-off directors or directors who you know, we're just starting out and really hadn't become established or we're like working in a more outsider realm. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially in horror films can be some of the most interesting work because it's not trying necessarily to conform to the pure commercial expectations that you tend to find in a lot of horror movies. I mean, horror is one of the more commercially viable genres and it always has been. So horror filmmakers or people who make horror movies tend to be like trying to like, here's the way that my film is going to be successful because it conforms to these things. And I, I, I'm mo- I'm mostly interested in doing collections that, are not of movies that are like uncommercial, but are <clears throat> of movies that may have been made without concern for their commerciality. Like they're like they're pure exercises in what the director wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That is definitely an apt description of the one in that box set, which is the one where the guys all go to that haunted house and they have to have a seance and it's like regional. And the one guy's like, I saw her head in the box, man. Like all the way through that movie killing me. <laughs> I think it took me yeah, the longest F- to get Fatal through of any movie. Fatal Exam. I think it took me the longest to watch of any movie in my life, but I finished it <laughs> and I'm glad I did by the end of it because it still had some genuinely great moments. So, Well, it's also 112 minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, oh, wow. that's what I mean. It was like not hitting those commercial buckets, but, uh, but still great. Uh, yeah, hit us with another one. 
Um, all right. Well, I think the last one that I'll I'll uh, note is uh, All American Murder. Mm. <clears throat> Never even heard of this one. So uh, it's uh, from '91, I believe, and it has Christopher Walken mm. uh, in a pretty good role. It was directed by Anson Williams, the actor. Uh, from Happy Days, mm-hmm. uh, and basically, it's a Jalo in slasher structure that has some surprisingly violent death sequences. Oh, and I keep on calling attention to those because it's just something that I like. Like I, I like a good gory death; I think mm. it makes it much more enjoyable. Uh, the highlight here is a guy who, continuing with the ripped in half theme, is ripped in half, uh, and it's uh, immortalized on the, the back of our slipcover. Uh, if you want to see that, on a, it's on an exercise machine. Oh. <laughs> I couldn't find this one on the page. Oh, he's got one of those 1980s. He's holding it on the back of the slipcover. Those 1980s um, stretchy, springy, work your chest, but squeeze all your skin together devices. I can't even, I don't even know what they're called. Um, But it was a very 1980s workout equipment. It was like a spring with two. Oh yeah. 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 I know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I just remember I would get hair. My mom had one and I'd get my hair stuck in it. And it was excruciating. So this is essentially like the uh, you know the college bad boy keeps on getting kicked out of school and he's sent to this new school and I think it's actually maybe even high school I can't remember but so it's like a boarding school and he is immediately implicated in a murder that happens there where a woman is uh, set on fire and thrown out of the window. Ooh. Uh, and he's basically given like a few days to clear his name and find the real killer. But then many more murders happen. Okay. So I, the police say like, go find the murderer or he's given like a couple of days and then uh, he, he makes a, he makes a, a bet with Christopher Walken. Who's the cop and says, let me like clear my name. And if I can't clear my name, you can arrest me. And oh, okay. Christopher Walken, he goes along with it. I have a list now. This is awesome. And you, let's talk about, there was one title that you kind of um, announced on socials that I'm pretty psyched about because I, this is one that I, I had forgotten I had seen. Moonstalker. Moonstalker. All I remember of this is that there's a guy, I think the main killer is like in a straight jacket and has like a, a weird hood on his head. And that's yeah, as he- far as I got. He has like a flower sack or something. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like, I remember the square cut eyes and that's literally the extent of my knowledge, except I think people were camping. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're, they're camping in the Reno area. And <laughs> Who's goes camping all, in Reno? <laughs> and, it, and it's also in the middle of winter. Weird. Uh, wow. So it's like, it's cold out, but they're all camping there. And in, in, in sort of traditional camping slasher fashion, the killer shows up and start to kill them. And they're kind of completely oblivious to the fact that they're all disappearing. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the way that we got this is through uh, Michael Goy, who mm-hmm. is a very good cinematographer, very good director. Uh, he's worked on American horror story. He directed a 
extremely underrated found footage feature called Megan is Missing. Mm. Uh, that's one of the earlier found footage films and also one of the best in that it is actually much more aware of how the found footage device works and mm-hmm. tries its best to like make it more believable than like everyone just has a camera everywhere. Like it, 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 it tries to actually impart some realism into that device. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, this is one of the first films that he ever shot. And we, he has been a huge supporter of ours. And he was like, I, you know, you need to release this movie. I want you to release anything I shot, especially the exploitation stuff. So he helped us get the rights to it. He uh, found the negative. Uh, so we are really excited to be working on it and working with him on it. Fantastic. Um, so can you give us one title, just put it out into the universe, the one title that you have always wanted to get, but for some reason or another, it's just not available or you can't get it. You're talking to me, right? So the answer is Wingshauser's Art of Dying. <laughs> You're talking to me. You made eye contact. Joe's I, I, was... I can't see Joe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So Elric wants Art of Dying. That's what I want. I, I'd love to get Art of Dying. D- directed by Wingshauser. Directed by Wingshauser. Starring. Starring him, uh, starring him in numerous sex scenes that he directed himself in. Oh, fa- wow. Also very uh, st- uh, starring uh, a gallon of food. milk. <laughs> gallon yes, of milk. <laughs> yes. Jesus Christ, I have never seen this. A double feature of this and possession for the milk alone, you know? <laughs> I, I, I love Art of Dying. I, yeah, I, no, it's the best I, of the, by far. I absolutely love to get Art of Dying. That would be, that because would he did be those three movies, right? Like, he directed three of them, and the other two aren't very good um, comparatively, and this one's like, really stands out. It's really cool. I, I think it's worth just, just describing for anyone listening who is not familiar with it what the general premise is which is it's a film it's it's a guy who's basically luring would-be actors to appear in famous hollywood horror movie reenactment snuff films yeah and that's not wings wings is the you know the the cop on the outside of the whole story but but he has sex several times in it he does oh yeah but the the people making those movies are also give great performances, very amusing uh, characters. I think that's actually kind of a cool concept. Yeah, like, no, as it's... far as films go, I'm kind of in. Yeah, it, it's 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 definitely one of those ones that feels like it's just begging to get a proper release. So, so sorry, I didn't mean to really hijack. That's actually, that's a great answer. That's that's actually that that is a film that I would love to put out. That makes me happy knowing that because it means it's possible someday. So. But I, I, I will say, without giving away the title, uh, there is a film that I have wanted for many, many, many years. It's one of my favorite, I don't know if calling it a slasher is really fair, hmm. but it has slasher elements to it. Uh, it. It's from that era of could be a proto-slasher, could be a slasher, could just be like a movie with frequent killings that isn't mm-hmm. either. Uh, but it's a film that I've wanted for many years and we are currently in talks with the owner. Ooh. So I don't okay. want to we'll be patient. Don't jinx it. it. Don't yeah, jinx it. Don't jinx it. Uh, 
I do love this Indiana Jones style, which is, yeah, cliche, but it sounds like literally that's how I always picture you guys and and David Gregory from Severin and, and some of the other boutique labels where it's like, the rights have been lost. No one knows who owns the movie. We can't find a print. And then it's like this hustle. Um, I find it so fin- just fantastic. I feel like, again, I, I, I agree. It's always an ag for all the work they do, obviously. But oh, I, yeah. I think we asked you about Black Room before. That was What was the issue with Black Room? I think I might, last time I, I might have harassed you about that one. But is that just something that we're never going to see? It's complicated. Okay. <laughs> but but like I remember somebody telling me that about pieces once upon a time. You know what I mean? Like So sometimes these things seem to... Well, things, I mean, things can become uncomplicated. Yeah. At the moment, it's complicated. Okay. Got it. I'll take well, that. Well, can you give us any details about what is coming up at that Black Friday sale? Anything that we can expect? Any amazing deals or any details? Well, let me just sort of run through the whole pitch. All right. I think that's, uh, that might be the best way to do it. So it's Black Friday, the 26th through Monday, the 29th, 12.01 a.m. Eastern time on the 26th. Site goes live. Uh, 12 a.m. or 11.59 p.m. to 12 a.m. end of the day on Monday, uh, the 29th. It ends during the sale. Every single title in our catalog, including many of the partner label titles, uh, along with the VSA, VSU, Picarama, all the other sub-brands, I can't even keep up with them myself, that we keep on doing that are more than a few months old because if they're too new, it's just it's, uh, gotta keep them at least closer to the retail price. We mm-hmm. haven't money back yet, uh, but uh, yeah, basically everything from I think be, uh, before August at least is going to be fifty percent off SRP. Uh, we have our three announced November titles, which are Trauma, as discussed, uh, William Malone's Creature which is another one that we begged for from MGM for a long time and they eventually relented. And what's great about that is we did a 4K restoration of the creature cut from the original negative. And Mm. we are also including uh, Malone's preferred earlier cut Titan find, which has some alternate scenes, additional scenes, as well as a tiny amount of extra gore. Hmm. Uh, so it's going to be the Blu-ray debut of both versions of the film, loads of new extras and interviews. And, um, yeah. Uh, and blanking here. And then of course, Frankenstein also as discussed, Mm -hmm. and that's going to be UHD in 2d because you can't do 3d UHD. Uh, 3D Blu-ray, which requires a 3D TV, but is ideally the way to watch it if you have a 3D TV. If you don't have a 3D TV and you can want to watch it in 3D, we're going to have a 3D Anaglyph version, also done by the 3D Film Archive, as well as the 2D version that everyone knows. And hours and hours of new interviews, archival interviews, all sorts of stuff. It's it's really an incredible release. Uh, and it's... Uh, for those who love the the packaging, the slip covers, the boxes, all that stuff, uh, you get two slip covers with it mm. inside a shell. So it's almost like three slip covers. It's like a slip cover holding other slip covers. Uh, and uh, yeah, then as always, we have 
two surprise titles that will be revealed as soon as the sale goes live. And both of these are films that I'm personally really excited about. One is another one that we have been, uh, I guess you get a, an exclusive clue. I don't think I've given this one out yet. One of them is another MGM title that we've been, that we tried for a long time to get. It's, uh, it's a strange direct video thing made by people who we have known for a while and mm-hmm. who are all were very excited to participate. Uh, and it's never had a disc release. I think it played a little bit on MGM HD, but uh, we are uh, debuting that again with another huge making of documentary since this is a film that, unlike a lot of the films that we've released, most of the people involved are still alive and we're also happy to talk about it. Fantastic. Uh, So the other secret title is a non-American film and it is probably one of the most notoriously gory and just ridiculous movies of its type period. Hmm. Uh, And it has never been released on blu-ray anywhere in the world and uh when we so we licensed the film the owner said we have an existing scan just use that and we usually don't like to do that because a lot of companies are not all that conscious of or i shouldn't i shouldn't even say conscious of like they just don't know the nuances of quality film restoration Mm -hmm. and we got the scan and it looked pretty bad so we were debating what to do with it and we eventually just went to them like we really can't use this we have to figure something out is there any way we could get the negative again and do a new scan and they were hesitant and then they eventually said yes so we decided why not seize the opportunity and we did a 4k scan and Mm. therefore are able to not only do the worldwide blu-ray debut but the worldwide uhd debut of the completely uncensored version of this heavily censored film. Ooh. Okay. Well, I'm be up now all night. And yeah. uh, well, it's the, nine a.m. Uh, specific, right? I remember last year I got on. It felt like it was nine p.m. Nine p. Sorry, nine p.m. Nine p.m. Yeah. specific, and yeah, just the other major thing is, as hopefully some listeners are aware, maybe even already have. Uh, we do our annual subscription in which you can purchase every single or pre-buy essentially every single title that comes out under the Vinegar Syndrome, under the Vinegar Syndrome branding, which is going to be around 36 releases, including numerous box sets, UHDs and all that stuff. And in addition to that, uh, which would be at 50% of SR, 50% SRP, uh, subscribers receive 50% off coupons for every single other title that we have, that's VSA, VSU, VSP, Picorama, every part and label title. And that's something, actually something that I would like to, sorry for jumping around here, but uh, call attention to that we are trying to sort of expand our, uh, our world and are now working with a really incredible and diverse array of other labels. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, there's a lot, Uh, but uh, big fan of fun city. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Fun City is one of We're the first stuff. ones that uh, we worked with. Uh, Jonathan Hertzberg runs it. He has really fantastic taste, and you know, if you if you're interested in the genre film adjacent or art film adjacent world of mostly at least so far mostly 70s into 80s films like he has some really fantastic stuff like his one of his most recent titles uh radio or his most recent title radio on is well worth picking up he's uh premiering it i think actually ready to premiere at the new york international film festival the restoration uh but yeah we have some fresh partner labels coming on uh and you know we're, we're hoping to kind of become like not just vinegar syndrome but like where you can a, a cinephile one-stop shop so Would you call yourself the kevin feige of the um, <laughs> universe that you are now building and they all have to come to you and pre-plan their release dates. I like this. Idea. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but uh, you don't do as much storyboarding. You're like no, no. storyboarding. I just looked uh, at your partners for, um, and I'm not familiar with this one altered innocence, but this set for yeah, night some- plus heart looks gorgeous. Yeah. And that is a film that, it's beautiful. Was one of my favorite films of 2019. It, it's it's yeah, it's a gorgeous looking film. Jan Gonzalez is an incredible director. He, uh, and and I say this as 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 no slight to Tarantino, but like this is like the film that I wish Tarantino would make. Mm-hmm. No, we saw it, um, and it's one of those things that Elric and I are kind of kicking ourselves for. We saw it a screening of it at. We were at the theater in Santa Monica. New Art. Thank you, New Art. I haven't been to theaters in a year and a half. This is what happens. Um, so we were at the New Art, and afterwards, they were playing the porn that was apparently such a huge info uh, inspiration for the filmmaker. And we yeah. were like, should we stick around? And I was like, I don't know if I can do porn at midnight, because it was like midnight by that time. But the movie was breathtaking. And later on we were both like god i wish i'd fucking seen that porn like we wanted to know where it came from i still don't know if i can do porn at midnight um especially in a theater it just uh yeah i i feel like i'd zone out but um yeah i can like, i you can or i can unequivocally little statement i can at midnight <laughs> perfect time for it <laughs> you know i think back when i was in new york um this guy 42nd street pete Yes. Okay. I'm glad that you've heard of him. So he used to do um, screenings when I lived in New York City at the Two Boots. And every couple of weeks I would go and I would see a lot of times he'd screen like reels or stag films. Um, A lot of them were just like weird Swedish ones that didn't even have titles on them and things like that. And there was something so um, weird about watching graphic sex acts with an audience that I just don't uh, I can't think of um, another situation where like, we don't experience that now. It's something that like, we just don't even think of like, that's something that's so private. Um, and so I kind of wish that we had had that moment of kind of sitting in the theater again, because they just, it, it hits weird and it's kind of euphoric and bizarre. 
Well, we did kind of just have that uh, a few weeks ago in LA with Dracula Sucks, which is oh my gosh. I, I didn't go to it, but I watched it at home, and man, that was I did not know Dracula could do some of those things. Wait, what like, is Dracula Sucks? I know the vampire. Exactly, Becca. <laughs> you just answered your with the title. No, it's so. I knew I saw one vampire porn that came out of Canada. If I remember correctly, it was like, Oh, sex killer. Sex killer. Okay. Yeah. I've seen that one, (laughs) but I have not seen Dracula sucks. Dracula sucks is a much more faithful adaptation of, uh, Stoker's uh, novel. Surprisingly. Yeah. I was surprised even, and even the costumes and sets were actually, it had pretty big production value. That was my next question. Are we talking like hammer grade production values for a Dracula adaptation? Okay. Uh, Cushing was played by John Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, I, I think that the closest hammer comparison would probably be like, they're like, real poverty row days where they have like the styrofoam sets yeah but i I don't say that in a bad way like it was actually shot at uh castle ranch up in lancaster Mm. which is probably uh it's it's the same castle where blood of dracula's castle was filmed is that still there yeah it's still there oh we got to do a trip yeah extras we almost we tried to break into it Hmm. Uh, is it closed down i feel like i'd call uh, it 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 was just gated it was actually sold a a couple of years ago i don't know who bought it but it was like on the market wow probably paul marcy (laughs) another paul marcy but no the the movie actually had some pretty entertaining stuff and there's a couple gore a couple actual gory scenes that surprised me uh the one had john holmes in it actually like just a moment where i was like okay now i'm seeing john holmes naked and with big vampire teeth this is something uh, it was on the last new Beverly calendar. I kind of wish I'd seen it, but we had to talk about it before. So I had to watch it prior to the, but I kind of wish I'd seen it with people. Cause you're right. It's something you don't even, we even noticed in just a couple of the Jalos, we, the, the uh, Martino films, just even when we saw that, it was strange vices of Mythos ward. We had yeah, yeah, you, talked about afterwards. You just don't watch sex acts in and, theaters. And anymore. it's so quiet in the room. I really, I really like that. And, um, but the only equivalent I think now, as you can see, there's a movie called the Eternals by his friend, Kevin Feige. And you can go see that right now. Apparently has a sex act that I'm sure is really sexy. I'm just going to guess <laughs> that they te- keep all their spandex on. Uh, I haven't watched it yet, but I probably never will. But, you know, apparently there it's the first Marvel sex scene. So we'll see. Wow. We'll see. I'm throwing a lot of shade at Marvel tonight, but. You are. What, what is it with you and Marvel? But anyways, thank you so much for joining us, Joe. I always get such great recs whenever um, you are on any of our shows. So thank you so much for, for coming and uh, giving us lots of good titles. And I will be in line at 9 p.m. for the, the Blu-ray sale. Um, and y'all need to get some more of the uh, Don't Panic jammies because mine are definitely getting worn out. They are surprisingly comfortable. When I ordered them, it was kind of a cool kitsch thing. I was not expecting them to be as comfortable as they are, and they're definitely in regular rotation in my jammies. Um, so yeah, Don't Panic. If you guys haven't seen that one, that's a great title as well. Well, I appreciate you having me, as always. <laughs> cool. Yeah, come back again when you release those secret titles. We'll follow up. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts. If you are looking for some weird stuff that has never been released that Elric and I really have to kind of scrounge the the, bur- <laughs> the back alleys of the internet to find Head to Deep Cuts. It's also where we put our weird stuff, like my watching Octopus Volcano this week, um, which is not what you think it is. And uh, yeah, and Elric Watch Nightlife. Um, And please check us out on socials. We will be announcing a new screening at USC 
soon-ish. We'll see. And um, otherwise, thank you guys so much for joining us. And we will be back in two weeks. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 